This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And we're here in San Francisco. A lot of deals going on here, but a really interesting deal actually happening, I guess, north and well east of us, Hudson Bay. Scott DeVoe joins us from New York City. He's been following this one closely. So remind us what's going on here, because this, of course, is, people probably hear Hudson Bay and like, what are we talking about? We're talking about sacks, really, at the end of the day, right, Scott? Well, I'm Canadian, so we're talking about Hudson Bay. But <laughs> yes, I think for most people in New York, probably Saks Fifth Avenue is the, uh, the way to go. So what's happening here is uh, essentially the chairman of Hudson Bay um, has put forth a proposal to take the company private. And that was, propo- uh, that was opposed by some of its minority uh, shareholders. In particular, it was opposed by a, a group called Catalyst Capital Group, which is a Canadian private equity firm. And they put forth their own counter proposal uh, to acquire the company. Now, the difference is uh, uh, Baker has offered about uh, the Baker Group, uh, which is the chairman of uh, Hudson Bay, has offered about $10.30 Canadian a share. And uh, Catalyst offered um, uh, $11 a share. The problem is the Baker Group owns the majority of the the company. And so they have a say on where it's going. Scott, why go private? Well, Hudson Bay is suffering from a lot of the malaise that's going on in the retail industry, obviously. Um, And they need to do some pretty drastic things in order to create value. Um, In particular, they need to monetize a lot of their real estate. And the argument is is that that's better done in a private setting than a public uh, setting where you have to worry about quarter-to-quarter earnings. And what are they? What do they sort of represent in the in terms of the retail world, Scott? Remind us of that because you know we've spent a lot of time talking to you and other colleagues about what's happening in the broader retail industry. Are they sort of suffering some of the same crosswinds? Where do they sit in the ecosystem here? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is the oldest uh, you know retailer in North America. So, I mean, they've they've been through. Uh, there, there, there are times and uh, ups and downs for sure. But, you know, obviously we're seeing, um, you know, the value of real estate in particular, uh, you know, in the retail sector declining. And that was something that, you know, had kind of propped up Hudson Bay for a long time. And, you know, when Hudson Bay decided to go, when the chairman decided to try to take it public, you know, they did a, an evaluation of the real estate on, uh, you know, Fifth Avenue. Uh, the Saks Fifth Avenue flagship, mm-hmm. uh, and you know the value had declined about uh, two billion dollars, or at least that's wow. the the estimates that they had uh, they had come to. And of course, that's on the backdrop of you know, uh, you know on, on online retailers kind of biting into their bottom line as well. Yeah, you know Scott, because we've heard similar rumors as well. Macy's, one of the worst performers this year, and then you take a look at their big flagship store in Herald Square and how do you monetize this right. for a retailer that has failed to adapt the physical presence to fit the modern consumer as you take a look at the real estate um, any thoughts of what could be sold off um, any regional specifics you could talk about well I think the the biggest opportunity is probably to repurpose it so you know online retail has eaten into the uh, the need for these big huge department stores and so 
Hudson Bay did a little bit of this. Um, you know, they partnered with WeWorks and redeveloped, um, you know, their Lord and Taylor uh, flagship store um, so that they'd had more office space. And, you know, what you do is basically reduce the square footage right. um, to, you know, to create value then for, for the real estate itself. But of course, you know, in a lot of these circumstances, maybe the best thing for uh, the retailer would be to just sell it outright and do a, right. a lease back. All right. So, Scott, we would be journalistically negligent if we had you in studio and didn't ask you about sort of the state of activism in 2019 and what you might expect in 2020. You're talking to, you know, the most active and aggressive activist investors uh, all the time. What, what do they have in their sights? What are they thinking about in this market right now? Well, we wrote an article a couple of weeks ago on, you know, the state of 2019, and obviously activism had declined slightly. But what we noticed was that the, you know, there, there were a lot more big targets this year. Um, so we saw like AT&T being targeted and, and, you know, some of these mega cap companies. And I think we'll continue to see that amongst, you know, the larger activists. And obviously, you know, there's, uh, you know, if there's any kind of economic downturn whatsoever, you, you know, some of these smaller funds uh, will be in trouble. And we obviously saw Mercado Capital, uh, right. you know, returning capital a couple of weeks ago. Um, so we'll be watching for that. But, um, you know, all signs seem to indicate that there's no slowdown or at least not a, a, a noticeable slowdown in, in activism for the year ahead. Well, and we just got off of a retail slash real estate conversation. You mentioned AT&T and telecommunications. What sectors are activists really um, pushing hard for, for lack of a better word, in 2020? Yeah, I don't think we're going to see any general trends in, in, in activism, honestly. I think the, the diversified field um, and conglomerates continue to be you know, the target. And obviously, yeah. there's a lot of energy stocks that are going to be in trouble from a distress perspective. So maybe that will be a trend going into the new year. It's always fun too because it's still the same names. Like if we were if we were to go back to our like 1988 selves and have a conversation about uh, you know some of these guys, I mean it's still amazing. You know, Icon still out there and and others. It's just it, it's really remarkable. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's 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 never a dull moment. That's for sure. All right, Scott DeVoe, thank you so much. Deals reporter for Bloomberg on the Activist Beat. Uh, His story about Hudson's Bay chairman uh, just pointing out the importance of that retailer, both north of us and here uh, in the United States. Happy New Year to Scott. We traded hearts way down where the trade winds play. All right. Well, trade, it's been the big story of 2019, economically, politically, globally. You name it. So let's understand where we go next. January 15th, turning out, it seems to be the next big moment here. The president saying he'll sign the first phase of a trade deal with China on that day. Kevin Cirilli, our chief Washington correspondent, joins us. What song was that, Jason? Uh, It's a throwback song about uh, trade. I don't know. (laughs) Did they have Twitter back then? No. Okay. No, they did not. I think they they were playing that when you know men would come back from the war and oh. sort of dance with their sweethearts. Maybe okay, yeah, okay. yeah. Well, I'm so, a big Frank Sinatra fan, so I there, support yeah. That. I mean, it it felt it felt a little bit on brand. You're kind of a throwback guy. In I many am. Ways. I'm an old soul. I'm an you old are. soul. 
You, you are. Know, but I've I, always I keep said up that with the you. tweets. Did you see this tweet from the president earlier today? He announced that he's going to be signing the U.S.-China Phase One trade deal on January 15th. The ceremony, the president tweets, will take place at the White House, and representatives of China will be present. At a later date, I will be going to Beijing, where talks will begin on Phase Two. This comes when the South China Morning Post reported within the last 24 to 48 hours that China Vice Premier Le Hu was going to be in Washington, D.C. this coming Saturday to meet with U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer. But I got to be frank here. Administration officials are not confirming that, nor did Peter Navarro, the president's hawkish economic advisor, confirm that when he was on Fox News earlier. Kevin, for the most part, the markets were pricing in this phase one trade deal. But now the attention has been focused on phase two. I keep hearing that it may not be a sure thing. What are you hearing about phase two? That it's not going to happen next calendar year. Look, there, Taylor, I mean, it, there are so many areas in which Republicans and Democrats agree when it comes to national security on the U.S.-China front. But those wide-ranging issues as it relates to Huawei, as it relates to intellectual property, Taiwan, Hong Kong, all of that from a national security perspective inside the Beltway is being talked about as a longer-term approach, really not between now and Election Day uh, and and is more of a second-term type of issue. That said, this is where it gets interesting, and I'll make this point relatively quickly. The Senate comes back next week, and they're right. going to vote on USMCA. That's week one of January. They Congress needed to ratify USMCA. They do not need to ratify phase one of the trade deal. While phase one of the China trade deal is is large in scope in the sense that it's the two of the the world's two largest economies, it's not large enough to require congressional approval, which gives the president and President Xi some wiggle room when it comes to maybe negotiating a mini deal on phase two. Well, and speaking of the Senate, after they vote on that, they're going to be taking up impeachment, right? So, I mean, the optics and the sort of political milieu that we may see in the middle of January, depending on how this plays out, could be very interesting, Kevin. Absolutely. I mean, look, think of it this way. Mark your calendar. You've got January 15th for the signing of the deal. The next day is the final debate for the Democrats in Iowa ahead of the Iowa caucus. Then the president could, in the backdrop of all of this, be dealing with a Senate impeachment trial and is set to deliver, mind you, a State of the Union address the day after the Iowa caucuses, the first week of February. Mind you, the president could deliver that State of the Union address having closed the door or or finished two of the largest significant economic pieces of his economic puzzle, minus the tax proposal from from, uh, the other year, with USMCA and China phase one in the backdrop of an impeachment trial the day after an Iowa caucus. Are you ready? Are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> we know you're ready because I you don't am. sleep I anyway. Wait. I can't it, wait. I'm going to need know. some more upbeat music, though, than that, than that throwback. <laughs> Kevin, as Jason smartly pointed out, this all comes down to OPEX as we get to next November. How does all of this, the headwinds and the tailwinds that you just mentioned, impact the election? Well, Taylor, you know, I think it's a great question because we just don't know. We know that impeachment has not thus far moved polls. It has activated the bases of both parties. But in terms of how Americans and workers in the working class are going to interpret these economic headwinds from USMCA, from the US-China trade deal, whether or not they're going to feel the effects of that. 
farmers likely will, uh, but in battleground states like Michigan and Wisconsin, Ohio and Pennsylvania, whether or not that impacts swing voters and independent voters, we just don't know yet. That said, obviously, the business community would like to see an end to the the, the tariff uncertainty, though we also don't know if the signing of the U.S.-China phase one deal marks the end of that uncertainty, uh, particularly as the president is suggesting that phase two is going to to start. The final point that I would just quickly make is that we got some new economic data just within the past couple of days that, uh, according to a survey of economists, uh, most economists are forecasting 1.8% right. GDP growth for next year, well below the 3% that the president had been aiming for. All right. So much going on. Happy New Year, Kevin Cirilli. Can't wait for all your reporting in 2020. That's Kevin Cirilli, our chief Washington correspondent, following all things political, economic, and today, trade. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So let's turn to Taylor, one of the most read stories, like not just one of the most read stories, it's like four of the most read stories. Now, granted, it's a little bit of a slow news time, but the Carlos Ghosn drama has absolutely captured the imagination of the whole world. He is one of the most famous CEOs of the last 10 to 20 years, and people have been following closely the saga that he's been a part of in Japan. Well, that took a massive turn yesterday when he turned up in Lebanon. Let's get into it with Craig Trudell. He looks after all of our U.S. auto coverage. He and his team have been following this so closely as well. Craig, I mean, if Carol Masser were here, what she would say is, whoa, this is <laughs> quite a story. Bring us up to date. What do we know about what happened over the last 24 hours? I'm just flabbergasted by the story and and all of the theories. Uh, If you look at uh, the the story at the very top of of, uh, Worldwide Top on the terminal today. And it's the most read story in the last hour, one of the most read stories for the day. That one alone, the escape theories. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, they're just all over the place. I think that's, you know, there's a lot to uh, to sort of be intrigued by this, uh, this story. Uh, theories that he may have had a performance uh, for him in his residence in, in Tokyo and had a uh, sort of music performance, uh, uh, you know, for, for Christmas and, and was smuggled out in a music uh, equipment box. Uh, that's one theory. Like a cello case or something, yeah, right? Yeah. Like I he would... folds himself into like some sort of <laughs> like cello case. It's crazy. Uh, you know, wh- whether his wife Carol was involved in this, whether... Uh, you know, Lebanese officials sort of, you know, grease the wheels for this. Uh, there's there's all sorts of, of theories, and, and maybe it's a combination of all the above. Uh, but, you know, really, I think there's there's another story on the terminal today about, you know, the sort of the real-world implications for this that I think are going to be really interesting to watch. You know, we know that part of the reason that Gon, part of the ways, ways that uh, Gon sort of defends himself uh, in, in this matter is to sort of, you know, cast this as a, a story about, you know, Japanese uh, executives at Nissan and officials in the government even sort of conspiring against him. And we know there's been a lot of tension between Nissan and Renault, uh, this alliance that is is kind of a mess and not kind of a mess, it's really a mess. And, you know, this will become potentially kind of a diplomatic issue uh, for, for France right. and Japan, uh, because this is a guy who, after all, his wife uh, just told Bloomberg Television uh, just a few weeks ago that, you know, he wanted to be tried in France where he felt like he would get a fair shake as opposed to Japan, where the conviction rate is very close to 100 percent. 
Well, and Craig, you talked about the complications this presents between the French and Japan. We're also hearing rumors now he entered with a French passport instead of just mm-hmm. an ID card. Walk us through again why Nissan and Renault, how this has further complicated that already fragile relationship. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a, a story of two companies that, you know, were both failing. And, and part of the reason why Gone became so famous is he turned around both of them, right? And there were there was real tension in the fact that Nissan had become such a, such a big car maker, a very profitable uh, company and was kind of carrying more of the load of, of the two companies. And yet Renault has a significant stake in Nissan and Nissan has less of a stake in Renault. There's also a lot of, you know, sort of French state meddling over the years that uh, the Japanese had to get used to, but didn't have to like it. And they were growing increasingly, increasingly frustrated and Gon wanted to see these companies combine. There was a lot of, you know, sort of national pride standing in his way. And ultimately, you know, he was unable to get that done because he was sort of done in by his own his own people. Uh, so, you know, I, I think the, the sort of next step here is, you know, if uh, on one hand, France has this sort of uh, uh, duty to protect their citizens uh, in, in matters uh, uh, like this. And on the other hand, you have the, the Japanese that are going to, you know, are, are very ticked off by how this has gone down and are going to want the French state to, to crack down and, and help bring this guy to justice. Well, and Craig, you know, as we've watched this unfold over the many months that it's been going on, we've learned a lot, to your point, about the Japanese legal system. We've also learned a lot about the outsized role that Carlos Ghosn Mm. played in all of these companies, how integral he was to all of this. And to Taylor's point earlier, you know, to this fragile alliance. It's also a little bit of a, a throwback in some ways, you know, here in 2019 going into 2020 to this outsized CEO in a lot yes. of ways. You know, sort of the role that he played, what he was able to command both from an industrial perspective, but also from a financial perspective and just a an influence perspective. Yeah, you think about someone we lost in 2019 in Lee Iacocca, this sort of larger-than-life CEO. That was very much, uh, you know, Gone was very much in that mold. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, Renault's chairman gave a very interesting interview to the Wall Street Journal recently where he said that, uh, you know, the future of the alliance is a matter of survival. I mean, these are two companies that, you know, like the rest of the auto industry, has real risk in in the massive amount of sort of structural change that's going on within the industry, the the move to electrification that it's going to be very costly and that they've struggled to um, you know to compete against the likes of Tesla with, uh, you know the the move to um, shared models and and autonomy that you know again <laughs> established automakers who have been around in in some cases for more than a century have really you know been un- unable to prove that they can compete in those spaces as well. And since Gone has left the picture, picture uh, Nissan especially has really been reeling, has really struggled. He was around to kind of you know tamp down all of the tensions, you know, get people to talk to one another, get people to work together. It was never a perfect situation, but it was um, a much better situation than it is now. And I think you see, you know, you do see some recognition out of uh, the executives that are running the show now that, you know, for, for all the frustration that they, they need one another and they have to get this fixed. 
So, Craig, what is the number one prescription for Nissan to look at turning around the company, ignoring the dramatics that's going on outside and focusing, <laughs> frankly, just on getting the business back? Well, I think you the the way you frame that question is perfect because I think the the sort of getting over the distraction that all this has caused, uh, you know, it's it's hard to sort of uh, overstate how much that has to factor in just the sort of day to day, you know, challenges of of running this company. Your your rank and file have to be, you know, just just as fascinated by this as as we all are. I think you know you look at what they've done in this market, which is, you know, they, they also sort of let their ambitions get the best of them. And it was, you know, a criticism that you often heard of Gone was that he had maybe eyes bigger than his stomach. You had a, a company that thought it could really, really be big all over the world and, you know, sort of built the infrastructure to uh, match those ambitions. In this market, they've really failed to live up to his market share targets and you know they, they are sort of uh, picking up the pieces of, of making th- those uh, flawed decisions. So you know, as much as this guy was an icon and, and really sort of a legend within the, within the industry, I think you're seeing sort of a, a little bit of a payback period of right. you know him getting ahead of himself when he was still there. Well, it's going to be uh, quite a story as it unfolds over the next few weeks and months. We expect to hear. It sounds like from Mr. Gone, possibly as soon as next week. Craig Trudell, thank you so much for your perspective. U.S. Auto's team leader for Bloomberg joining us from New York City. All right, we knew the song was going to be Signs, and uh, Taylor Riggs thought it was going to be more like, who's the, I saw this, Ace of Base, thought it was Ace of Base, (laughs) I was going back this way. so let's talk about the signs as we go into 2020 with Gregory Sarian. He is CEO and founder of Sarian Strategic Partners. Joining us on the phone from Wayne, Pennsylvania, back east, as they say here in California. Gregory, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Jason and Taylor. All right. So here we are, President Trump, President Xi. They're presumably going to sign something mid-January, phase one of the U.S.-China trade deal. So trade off the table in 2020. How are you feeling about it? Well, that, that's the question, right? It, it's, uh, it seems like everything is moving in the right direction. It's in both countries and both markets' best interest for this to happen. But I think this is what's really important for investors to keep a close eye on, as we saw throughout 2019, how fits and starts and how changes in, in intent can really move markets. So uh, assuming that things move smoothly in a positive manner, we believe that's supportive for markets, especially areas like technology, telecommunications, where the uncertainties of tariffs have now been lifted, and, and even emerging markets, which have really underperformed over the last uh, really five, seven years. But this is a volatile, choppy situation, and until it's done, it's not done. You know, Greg, I sound like a broken record. My poor friend Jason Kelly is going to kill me because you said a lot of the uncertainties around technology have been lifted. And so that's, um, believe, correct me if I'm wrong, if I heard you wrong, but that's, you know, a sector that you really like, given that a lot of those headwinds are behind us. I'm astounded by the 2019 massive outperformance of tech. How much more really do you think it has room to run? Well, that's a great point, and it's something we're watching closely. And it's not just tech, but it's really that large-cap growth sector in particular that has been such dominant outperformance 
on the tech and, and telecom and healthcare companies over your oils and energies and utilities. And so, again, we do believe if progress has continued to made, be made in this area, and it appears that trade deals talks phase one at least getting done, and, and perhaps who knows what phase two looks like, uh, we think that that outperformance can likely continue. And so when you think about the Fed, Gregory, you know, we spent so much time here in 2019, and part of it was all of the uncertainty that we ended 2018 with, thinking about every single word that Jay Powell said, especially as he sort of found his feet talking to the market, uh, which was sort of a process that we all got to witness month by month as he sort of got that message out. And yet we go into an election year. And we're told that basically, per tradition, effectively, the Fed is really not going to do anything to mess anything up in in an election year. Do you buy that? How does that figure into your broader kind of investment analysis, given that uh, stance? So it's important to remember the Fed's job is not to manage the markets, but to manage monetary policy. Right. And so I think I think that Fed Chairman Powell and his team did a fine job of navigating that really challenging role uh, through the back end of 2019. So it's almost a catch-22 in terms of looking into 2020, because if we do see growth continue and we continue to see you know, things like manufacturing numbers really get more more stable given this hopeful trade deal moving forward, uh, I don't think it completely be ruled out that the Fed is off the table for 2020. Fed's job is to manage inflation. And while that's not a concern today, as we end 2019, they will be vigilant to monitor that going forward. Every indication is they're off at least for the first part of 2020, but it's something that investors are going to have to be monitoring really carefully. Greg, I'm taking a look at a chart here on my terminal, which we'll put out for our viewers, and it is a classic return of a 60-40 portfolio. It returned 21.5% this year, the best performance in two decades. This looks pretty simple. Throwing my money in a 60-40, I'm coming out ahead by 21%. Remind us again why you think diversification matters, given this chart shows me that maybe passive management looks okay. Sure. Well, I think the the anomaly of 2019, Taylor, was that it was such a good year for bonds as well. Yes, one talks about how great the stock market was and the wonderful returns we all enjoyed this past year, but you can't put, put past the fact that bonds had a tremendous year as well, given the drop in yields and the increase in, in prices that investors who are in things like convertible bonds or high yield or intermediate to longer duration muni bonds saw high single digit, low double digit returns. That we do not believe can be repeated in 2020. So I think investors are going to have to be a lot more careful uh, on managing their bond portfolio, staying short, staying high quality in, in their uh, duration. All right, Gregory Sarian, one more question for you. What are your running goals for 2020? Do you have a race mm. on tap? <laughs> you know, if I can continue to keep doing a couple half marathons a year, that's uh, my, my, my goal is to keep eating father time. So if we can keep doing a couple half marathons, that's a good thing. I like it. I like it. Well, you've done five Boston marathons, uh, according to uh, our research. So uh, you're a serious runner, that's for sure. Happy New Year to you. Thank you so much for your insights as we head into the aforementioned 2020. 
All right, so let's get to the final drive to the close of 2019. What a year for the stock market. Let's break it down with Sylvia Jablonski, Managing Director of Capital Markets and Institutional ETF Strategist for Direction. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Sylvia, sorry that we're not there to entertain you back home, but you know, we're out here on the West Coast living living our best lives. Yeah, you guys are doing a good job entertaining me from from afar. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. Well, it's happy uh, happy for us that you're with us at least uh, remotely. So, what do you make of of this past year? Before we look ahead, you know, think back to 2019, and we've been talking about this quite a bit today on the show and this week. This idea that we went into 2019 not so optimistic, especially given what happened on Christmas Eve and some of the volatility that was introduced there. What surprised you about this year? So I, I think you know probably not so much surprised me this year. What surprised me last year was this time last year. Yeah. So you know I didn't expect the the sort of pullback in December, but you know I, I did sort of I, I didn't expect thirty percent from the S and P five hundred either. But I did expect it to be a pretty good year, and I think that you know there were a lot of good things going for us. We had central banks around the world supporting and stimulating global economies. You know, economic uncertainty started to fall as we saw wage increases, strong unemployment numbers. You know, we saw earnings, although the predictions were expected to be terrible. We did see some, you know, positive surprises in earnings and, and you know, sort of stability there, GDP stability. And I think that U.S. stocks just were a really good place to be this year. So investors had, you know, some, some really good results if they were in the market this year. And Sylvia, I like in your note that you say December was one of the best months for stocks in 50 years. But more importantly, it's a bullish setup for year end and really into 2020. As you take a look at what appears to me on almost every analyst that we speak to for a very bullish 2020, what sectors do you like? What sectors do you not like? Sure, great question. So I think, you know, sort of starting at the beginning, I think international stocks are poised for a pretty good comeback in 2020. So, you know, if we look at sort of the buy, buy low uh, names out there, they've been absolutely hammered both in developed and emerging markets. And I think that, you know, that's been because of lack of economic growth, strong dollar trade wars and other factors. But um, you know, with the World Banks and stimulus and 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 sort of the the setup for growing middle class, you know, growing amount of sort of educated workers entering the worst force workforce, investments in technology, um, you know, some of those factors really playing out should be pretty good for emerging markets and developed markets. And I think that you know they're not starting out at such high valuations. 
Um, I still like consumer discretionary, you know, Cyber Monday this year crushed it. We saw 9 billion in sales, 17% year over year. The consumer is strong. You know, wage growth was, is up 4% year over year. The consumer is 70% of the economy. And, and I think if we look at the consumer and who he or she is, you know, it's, it's the young millennial entering the job market and it's the older millennial sort of hitting their stride. So if you look at, you know, fintech, e-commerce, AI, um, areas like that, you know, consumer thinking more along the lines of, you know, Amazon versus Macy's type of thing, I think will be a good place to look. Um, I really like Ubot, AI. Uh, I heard your last segment about semiconductors. You know, you've got 5G, artificial intelligence, robotics, touches everything from, you know, non-invasive robotics um, for surgeries, you know, sensors and factories, um, automation to reduce costs, driverless cards, clouds. Um, you know, I, I just think it's a, it's a massive space to look at. And, you know, finally, last but not least, I really like healthcare and pharma. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Talk to us about that a a little bit more, because I feel like there's been some volatility, if if nothing else, some sort of optical volatility, if that's even a thing. There's political, you know, football that gets played in the healthcare space, especially as we go in in, into an election year and you hear so much about broadly healthcare in the political realm, especially on the Democratic side. What do you make of the sort of risk and reward broadly in healthcare? Yeah, so I, that's an awesome point, and I think that it's it's sort of one of those sectors that keeps investors on the sidelines, right? Because everybody's afraid of what will happen with the election, what's going to happen with Medicare for all, and and you know, sort of the restrictions on on drugs and and research and things like that. But if you look at healthcare. All that aside, you know that's that's been the talk for the last four years. Not a whole lot has has happened. Um, if things remain the way they are, I would expect that probably a whole lot will also not happen. But what you have with healthcare is, you know, 15 to 20 percent of the population within the next couple of years will be over the age of 65. They will be consumers of healthcare, and it's yeah. not something that they skimp on. Um, it's you know it's a sector that that is up, but 19 percent versus 30 percent, so multiples are a lot lower. It's more attractive to to sort of, you know, get into right now than some of the, um, you know, real toppy sectors out there. The companies pay decent dividends. Um, If you look at, you know, some of the the top names we saw this year, Merck, Pfizer, companies like that, you know, where where you're getting one, two, three percent dividends out there. It's a place to get some income. And I think that, you know, pre-approvals, approvals are on all-time highs. M&A activity is strong. Interest rates are lower. They can spend a lot more. Um, it's. I, I just think that it's set up to do well in in coming years, and particularly just just from a population standpoint. You know, there are a whole lot of people that are going to consume healthcare. You really piqued my interest at the top of the segment when you said that you really liked consumer stocks, and you were talking about some of the retail sectors like Amazon, which is a have versus the have nots of Macy's. Do you continue to expect to see more and more of that divergence within the retail sector between the haves and the have nots? You know, I, I would expect to see that, and I think that you know it, it sort of goes back to the the technology AI thing, where I just think that you know some of the um, some of the sort of like homegrown storefront types of companies you know uh, unless they really you know automate and make a compelling argument for you know the consumer to shop sort of there before an Amazon um, you know I, I just think that that it's going to go the other way and I think it'll look more like um, you know the, the Amazon consumer index versus the straight retail index that investors look at 
All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Sylvia Jablonski, Managing Director, Capital Markets and Institutional ETF Strategist for Direction. Direction, what am I, am I saying it right? Um, it's, it's, it's direction, but a lot of people direction. like, like to say it the French way. So you're all good. <laughs> direction. <laughs> all right. We're going to go with direction. Thank you for uh, keeping me honest on that. Happy new year. I uh, look forward to talking to you in 2020 as well. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.